Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, uh, and today we're gonna walk you through the January edition of our premium wine club, which we're hilariously calling Juice Plus, uh, in the face of all the Juice Plus people. Uh, <laughs> today we have a very special guest. Um, we have Erin, uh, who's going to introduce herself because I'm sure she'll do an infinitely better job of, uh, of that than me, so. Uh, hi, my name is Erin. I am the GM and the buyer at Bricks Wine Company. Uh, we are located in Inglewood here in Calgary. Um, and we, over the last few years, have definitely um, kind of really switched our focus onto natural wines and wines made by families rather than factories. So juice uh, perfectly fits into that philosophy for us. Totally. Um, yeah, basically at the end of last year, we sent out a little um, survey for people in our wine club to take and we asked them, you know, what we should change, what we should keep the same. And the one sort of standout that they said about the podcast um, was more guests. And so basically we, we went about ordering a new microphone <laughs> um, so that we could do this properly socially distanced uh, and also so that the, I don't know, vocal quality is, is good. Um, and so, yeah, now we're going to try and have guests on as often as possible, hopefully every time. But, you know, it's a, it's a little tricky with the restrictions, but we'll find a way to make it work. Um, so, yeah, today we have three wines to talk about. Like we mentioned in the last episode, um, we sort of wanted to do uh, like two whites and a red or a white and an orange and a red and then two reds and a white kind of alternating months. Um, this month is sort of the more white focused, um, although this first one that we're going to taste could be classified as an orange wine as well. Uh, so this first wine comes from Gut Ogao. Um, this is maybe the most legendary producer in our, in our entire portfolio, uh, known the world over for obscenely high quality, um, for being rare collectible wines, uh, for being uh, the most gorgeous human beings of all time, uh, for being incredibly hospitable, and, and just, again, the best humans. Like You would want to support them if you ever met them. Um, they are located in Austria in a little region called Bergenland, uh, which is just south of Vienna. And uh, this particular wine is called Timotheus. So we'll, we'll kind of dig into it a little bit, um, but maybe we'll start with actually tasting it for once. Uh, normally I kind of ramble for a really long time, but it's, it's in my glass and I can't help but uh, want to sip it. So. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, Aaron. Maybe you want to give us your initial thoughts on the on the wine. You haven't actually tasted this before, so it's super exciting to get to show it. Yeah, to you. I'm super excited. This is I've, I've tasted you know quite a few of the uh, Goodigal wines, but this is definitely the first time uh, tasting this one. I mean, it's got a little bit of a well, it's got a pretty cloudy appearance to it mm -hmm. um, on the nose. I get a lot of um, kind of tertiary notes on the nose, but on the palate, it's like fresh, crunchy pineapple. It's totally. just delicious. Yeah, definitely. A lot of those like sort of like golden delicious apples and like totally. things like that. Like just like crunchy fruit characteristics. Crunchy is one of my favorite words to, yeah, to me, use to describe wine. Me too. My favorite is when we had uh, Franz Wenninger in town and uh, when he wanted to say like, crunchy or like crisp he would always say crispy and so i, I like crispy wines <laughs> i think that's like crispy. yeah I, I really like that um so yeah to give you some background on on gudo gao um 
So this winery, again, located in Bergenland, Austria, which is sort of centered around this lake called the Neusiedler Sea. It's a very shallow lake. Um, it's very broad. It helps moderate the temperature in this particular region. Um, water sources often help prevent extremes of heat. That's why we can have wine in the Okanagan, for instance, um, or around Lake Ontario. Um, that's why we, we can actually survive those things is, is because the water basically helps um, maintain a more consistent temperature year round. Um, this area, sort of rolling hills, quite gentle, and a lot of different soil types here. Um, for this particular wine, uh, I think I wrote in the note something like limestone, slate, gravel, and sand. Uh, so a lot of different soil types, all in just a handful of different vineyards. Um, Gudogau is a very small property. Uh, they own just over 10 hectares, uh, which is, again, quite small. Um, but it's actually split up into over 40 different plots. So some of their little vineyard areas are actually, you know, like two rows of vines. So it's super, super small. Um, and it's a lot of work to farm these things. The vineyard was actually abandoned uh, for, I don't know, over 20 years. And uh, when Stephanie and Edward, the, the owners, proprietors, winemakers of Ogao, um, went in, they had to do a lot of work in the vineyards to sort of bring them back to life, but they sort of understood that these vineyards were the way that they wanted to be. After they were abandoned for 20 years, the vineyard was actually way healthier from an ecosystem perspective than it was while it was an actually while it was an actual vineyard. And so they decided to keep a lot of those indigenous plants in the vineyard, um, have things like uh, more like a permaculture, having cover crops between the rows. Um, and some of the vineyards they actually left completely wild uh, and go in there and try and harvest some of the grapes every once in a while. Although it's uh, you know some years they actually lose 100% of those grapes. Um, yeah. Uh, it was really interesting. They visited, what was it, two, three years ago now? I don't know how long ago it was now. Two years ago, I think? Yeah. yeah. 2019. Was yeah. it 2019? It's hard yeah. to say with COVID times, but uh, yeah. <laughs> listening to them speak about um, their vineyard practices, and I remember they were talking about the quartz crystals that they use. It just, you know, very natural and very... Uh, low intervention, I, I think, you know, mm -hmm. when you're talking about leaving the vineyards wild. Yeah. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, too, is we talk a lot about minimal intervention in the winery, but we don't talk about minimal intervention in uh, the vineyard necessarily. But that's really what they're doing is they're trying to create an ecosystem that can sustain itself without them having to, like, fiddle around too much. Um, you know, we were driving along the side of the road uh, while we were in Austria, and uh, Edward basically like pulls over the car and he's like, yeah, and this is one of our vineyards. And we're like, what do you mean this is one of your vineyards? <laughs> it just looked like a bunch of like trees and tall grass. And he's like, oh no, the vines are in there somewhere. Uh, he's like, we just decided to like leave it like this. And there's wild vines like crawling up the tree and stuff like that. Um, and it's really beautiful. Um, so for this particular wine, this is made um, mostly from Gruner Veltliner, uh, but also from Weissburgunder, which most of you would know is Pinot Blanc. Um, it's it just gets a German name in, in German-speaking countries often. Um, they don't really know the percentage of each grape variety, and they don't want to know. The whole idea behind this is that um, traditionally winemakers are like, oh, Riesling, I'll make it taste like Riesling, or Grüner I'll make it taste like Grüner versus they're like, if we don't know what grape varieties we have, then we don't impose sort of like this, this will of humanity onto the wine, and we can just let it be whatever it wants to be. Um, that's why, you know, with the exception of one wine that they make, they don't really make a varietal wine. So a wine that's of one grape variety um, or where the grape variety is the focus of the wine. Um, 
yeah, do you have a lot of people come into the store who are like, I only drink one grape variety, and you show them a blend, and they're like, no? Or like, are people pretty open-minded now? I think now people are definitely open-minded. Uh, we definitely still get um, some of the, the old brigade, as I like to say, that, that have these ideals in their heads um, as to what they want. And, you know, some people say they only drink blends. Some people say they only drink single varietals. But I'd say more than people coming in saying that I get people saying where are the wines with the faces (laughs) (laughs) totally yeah (laughs) that's how people describe labels for sure the whole idea behind these labels is um basically when they were originally tasting through the wines um during their first vintage which was like 12 or 13 years ago now um they kept sort of like personifying these wines like describing them in in the characteristics of human beings and so uh when they collaborated with um this uh like basically like an ad agency who has like really great artists on staff in copenhagen i believe um they sent them like hey like these are what we think the wines taste like and they came up with uh illustrations that represented like those people and from there they created this sort of like fictional family tree uh i think timoteus is uh is like one of the uncles in the family um he's like the soft-spoken kind of poetic uh, sort of like somber but like cheerful simultaneously kind of guy uh, you can read the back they always have like really hilarious descriptions of what Timoteus is like this year um, versus all their other wines that also carry faces and names on them um, definitely check out the the a picture of the lineup uh, our office is actually entirely decorated with their bottles uh, because all the faces are just so beautifully illustrated we have um, an entire shelf dedicated to them it's you know the lineup we've got some of the masquerade wines as well which mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to them losing their masks totally gets us a little bit off topic bringing yeah. those up but <laughs> yeah no definitely those are super cool yeah to, to explain those uh basically stephanie and edward a couple years ago got the opportunity to buy um, a couple more acres of vineyard and they've been converting them to biodynamics but during the first couple years of that conversion from conventional farming um to biodynamic farming some of the vines can maybe struggle a little bit depending on the site they don't always but they they often can and so they decided to actually bottle those wines separately instead of incorporating them into um, into the rest of their line. And so they created this masquerade series where the characters on the labels um, actually have masks on because uh, they're, they're we, we don't know. personalities aren't shining through yet. Yeah, exactly. We don't know who they are yet. So they're like, why would we put a face on this? Um, and I think the really beautiful thing, too, is that for the other wines, uh, all the names on the labels are actually names of people who used to live on that farm like 100 years ago. Um, they actually went into, I think they went into like the local archives and, and found the names of these people um, and, uh, and, and put them on the label. So there's Athanasius, Theodora, Timoteus, Emiram, Josefina, uh, Mechtild, beautiful name. <laughs> Bertoldi, uh, all these like classic Austrian names that I had never heard of before, but that uh, that are on this label. So I think it's a really great way to pay homage to to the people and to the history. It's, I always like to say wine isn't just fermented grapes; it's totally. so much more. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, a culmination of so many things. Um, and then the other thing that's interesting about this wine is that one third of this was fermented on the skins. Uh, I don't know. You're basically like a like an orange wine expert and advocate now. So maybe Thank you can you. give us your, your orange wine story, uh, <laughs> and then and then maybe explain to us, you know, just a little bit about how it's made. Yeah, I mean, my orange wine story I think pretty much starts with you. Uh, <laughs> That's why I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> I think you had come into the shop with Strohmeyer, mm. another Austrian producer, and presented it to me, and it was 
it was definitely my first time tasting skin contact uh, white wine and I was not a fan. Mm-hmm. I, I, I adamantly was not a fan. Uh, and I don't know what it was that clicked. I just kind of came around to it. I think I was going into it with a closed mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the more I tried, the more I discovered that I really quite enjoyed it. Um, we often get asked, we have an entire orange wine section in the shop and we'll often get asked, you know, oh, orange wine is that made from oranges. Um, and I mean, obviously, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, most of your listeners probably know, <laughs> orange orange wine is white wine that is essentially made like red wine. It's just got an extended period of time on contact with the skins, uh, which gives it more flavor, gives it more texture, and obviously we sometimes get uh, the color from it. We had wine that you guys brought in from Cambridge Road a couple of years ago that had like 24 months of skin contact. Yeah. <laughs> and when I opened the wine and put it into a glass it was completely clear there was no color yeah. on it and I was, I was like, is this accurate is is the information on the label correct and I, I remember texting you uh and you explain you know the lack lack of access to oxygen mm-hmm. and how um you know not allowing any oxidation to happen during the fermentation or even the aging process um prevented the color from happening mm-hmm. um so I think you know we call it orange wine skin contact white is maybe a better title for yeah. it because the color isn't necessarily indicative of the process yeah I think would be fair to say totally yeah I always like give people the reference to of like white wine is not white uh like if I were to hold a wine up to this white chalkboard there or whatever board behind us uh you'd notice that your white wine is actually more like yellow but you're not upset that it's called white wine we can all agree that it's called white wine uh and then same thing with like i don't know like you in like other languages where you have like you know tinto um you know things like that that aren't like direct translations of red necessarily and red is a spectrum as well as summer yeah exactly pinot noir pinot black uh because apparently all the vignerons back in the day were all colorblind and just only saw in black and white so they're like this is a white grape this is a black grape pinot gris it's a gray grape because it's somewhere in between uh but yeah so either way uh it just goes to show that i don't know it's Taste in wine can change drastically for everybody, whether you've been a professional for a decade or whether you're just getting into wine and one week you like something, one week you don't. Um, You know, it all just depends on how you come into it and and sort of your openness to those new flavors and uh, accepting the validity of flavors. We've talked a lot about this over the last month or so, um, this idea that uh, other people's and other cultures' flavor spectrums are equivalently valid to our own. So even though certain characteristics are maybe less prized in North America and our like Western slash like European culture, uh, maybe those characteristics are really prized in, you know, in Asia or, or prized in Africa. And so th- there's no reason those flavors are any less valid. Um, and so I think orange wine is a really great example of that where there's lots of sort of Near East spices, those sort of characteristics, a lot of like fenugreek and, and things like that in some of those orange wines and gingery qualities and, and tropical fruits that we've never heard of before and a lot more umami too yeah exactly a lot more umami characteristics so definitely so yeah um but this is a very friendly version i would say this wine is like completely blowing my mind when i opened it earlier i just like couldn't wait to share it with everybody it's phenomenal it's drinking really really nicely i do get a little bit of like a lingering umami on the finish Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah like you say golden apples and pineapples it's just gorgeous 
yeah it's like ultra mineral i find yes it's just like got this like really beautiful like crisp clean sort of minerality to it um yeah almost like this like little hint of flintiness it actually reminds me a lot of burgundy in a way and like their wines don't normally remind me of burgundy but this is actually reminding me a little bit of burgundy like that more sort of like reductive flinty quality to it and then that sort of like broad again sort of like it's weird because it kind of skips over the fruit in the middle it's like pineapple and apple and normally like in a wine with pineapple you'd have like pineapple and then like stone fruit like peaches Definitely. you know that sort of thing Mangoes. like nectarines like yeah. that sort of thing but this just like skips straight from like green apple and pineapple <laughs> like it's like on two ends of the the fruit spectrum which yeah. is kind of rad it's so. dangerously drinkable yeah exactly yeah this is sort of like the more uh premium wine in the premium wine club um this month as well which is i don't know 70 bucks so it's it's, it's not cheap but we only get like um 36 bottles a year in for this vintage and then the new vintage that we just got uh we only got 12 bottles of oh my goodness and next vintage we're only getting 12 bottles but we're also getting three magnums i think so mark is also here uh he's just being more quiet uh he's just spectating he's actually mostly watching hockey but he just wanted to drink the wines uh you can't see it but i wanted to make sure that the visual was complete and uh yeah exactly we all have our roles mark is pouring yeah exactly mark is mark is pouring pouring he's uh he's legislating um speaking of maybe you could pass the uh the next wine here um, which I may have shoved the cork so far into, you might not be able to get it out. Oh, no. Oh, got he's it. a professional. All right, so while Mark pours this, um, I can talk a little bit about this. So this is Domaine de la Guerrelière. Um, this is made by uh, Francois and Pascal, this lovely husband and wife team um, in the Loire Valley. Uh, the Loire Valley is located um, sort of, I guess, south uh, south and west of where Paris is in France. Um, it's quite close, you know, just over an hour drive to get to, uh, to Tours, um, which is sort of where we had as our home base before we visited all the places. Everybody's already smiling at the smell of this wine, so that's a good sign. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and this area is mostly known for things like Sauvignon Blanc and Chenin Blanc, but the one that we decided to include in this wine club um, was a Chardonnay. Um, for some weird reason, um, Francois decided that he wanted like, I don't know, uh, I can't even remember how much of this he has planted. It's like a quarter of an acre or something like that. It's like the tiniest little bit uh, of Chardonnay planted in his vineyard. Um, But he just loves Chardonnay and he especially loves it uh, as this sort of like really full, really rich, sort of decadent, rotund style, uh, which is sort of the antithesis of like everything else uh, that comes from the Loire Valley. The Loire Valley is very famous for making these like high acid, crisp but, but powerful white wines from Chenin Blanc and Sauvignon Blanc. Um, you've probably heard of like uh, Puy Fumé, for instance, Sancerre, um, wines like that, wines like Vouvray, wines like Savignard. Those are all in the Loire Valley and those are all like powerful, linear, um, highly acidic wines. And, and this is like, it's fresh, but it's definitely rich, rich and supple. It's yeah. amazing. It's uh, I, re- I remember when we tasted through the lineup with you, we were blown away. We loved every single wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one really, really stood out. I think because it is unique to see Chardonnay in the Loire. Totally. Um, and like you say, with everything being really linear and driven and precise, and not that this isn't precise at all, but mm-hmm. it's it's got this gorgeous creamy quality to yeah. it. Um, it's just stunning. Totally. 
so yeah, their their farm is located basically in its own region, all on its own. So the, the Loire Valley is divided into a bunch of different subregions. Um, again, I mentioned Savignere and Vouvray, um, but you also have uh, red wine regions in there as well. Uh, Chinon being like sort of the maybe the most famous example. Um, and the, the Loire River, which defines the Loire Valley, runs sort of like uh, east-west for hundreds of kilometers. And so if you're on the West Coast, you're really close to the ocean, you're getting a lot more ocean influence versus if you're uh, you know, closer to the center of the country in places like Sancerre, um, sort of the end of the river, uh, you end up getting more of, um, you know, more climatic shift over the course of the year, hotter summers, but colder winters, unlike on the coast. Uh, you also get a lot less rainfall. So these guys are located closer to that Sancerre side. So they're getting a little bit less rainfall, a little bit more disparity between summer and winter temperatures. Um, but they're also located quite a bit south of the, of the Loire Valley or of the Loire River. Um, you actually have to drive for, I don't know, an hour and a half or something like that. I can't remember exactly how far we, we drove, but basically an hour and a half south of Tours, uh, you literally leave the region of the Loire Valley, and then when you get into their village, they're like, this is still the Loire Valley again. Uh, it's like an island. And honestly, th there wasn't any vineyards around them. We were driving and driving, and all we saw was like sunflowers and, and wheat. Uh, and then all of a sudden you approach this like really beautiful hill that's just completely covered with vines and this cellar that is hundreds of years old. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. and and But like also like not underwhelming. What's the word I'm looking for here? It's like... Uh, modest? Modest, yeah. It's it's understated. It's modest, for sure. Um, it's not like these... these. It's not like visiting the Douro Valley where it's like the vineyards were literally carved with dynamite into like this river valley. It's like this hill in the middle of nowhere, France, that just happens to be perfect. And this couple like very lovingly tends all the vines and just like all they want to do is be together and they want to be with the vines and they want their kids to grow up in the vineyard. And it's just like the most beautiful sort of like loving atmosphere for wine to be made. Uh, I don't know. That's that's the stuff that I get excited about for sure. Yeah. Getting chills just thinking about going back. <laughs> oh, yeah. to travel again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so coming from the retail side, uh, is there still sort of like a, an anti-Chardonnay stigma? Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah, there definitely is. Um, I like to try to tell people without sounding uh, condescending that they've just been drinking the wrong Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I first got started in the world of wine, I moved from a really small town in rural BC. Um, I thought I only liked red wine, but I wanted to pursue a career in wine. And uh, so I started, you know, experimenting and trying to drink more white wine. And Chardonnay was one I still had a hard time with because I'd been exposed to mass-produced, um, poorly made or poorly grown grapes that were then, you know, masked with a ton of, of wood chips. I like to call <laughs> that style Chateau 2 by 4 Yep. <laughs> you know, you're not tasting pure fruit. You're tasting um, manipulation. Um, and I think that that's the story for a lot of folks. Um we luckily we're really we're really fortunate that we've got some fantastic customers who are really open-minded um and trust us <laughs> um and when we suggest wines like this i mean even this what is it is it fully fermented in oak oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah they get like so basically at a winery 
like theirs, uh, every once in a while they need to replace oak barrels just because, like, you know, there's wear and tear on barrels as you move them around, as you use them. There's going to sometimes develop leaks or whatever, and sometimes it's not worth fixing. Sometimes your production increases a little bit or whatever that happens. So every once in a while you have to buy new barrels, and new barrels have the most amount of flavor. And so basically he uses his Chardonnay to season those barrels. It's amazing. He's like, I don't want to put, like, Sauvignon Blanc into new oak barrels or else it's going to just it taste like super messed up uh so although i have had versions that i really like of that um but he's like no i'm, I'm just like chardonnay is for new barrels and i love it like that's the, where the, this whole name comes from uh so marquis de c is the name of the wine um although we we just call it the chateau guerrelli or chardonnay more often than not um but marquis de c is basically based on this like the story of like puss in boots which i guess like the french version of it is something along the line of um this like peasant's uh like father dies and the only thing he leaves him is his cat and this guy's like what the hell like i what am i gonna do with this cat uh and the cat was like really upset by this idea and was like hey like i can actually be way more useful than you think because he's apparently a talking cat and he goes off and like convinces i guess like the emperor that um that his owner like the owner of this cat is like you know, a nobleman and that you need to like earn his favor and that it would be good to have him on your side. And so he gives him like a pair of boots. Um, and so this is where like Puss in Boots comes from, I guess. It's and amazing. like the cat brings these like fancy boots from the king, like back to his owner. He's like, look, I'm useful. But ultimately he just ends up being a peasant in boots. And that's kind of their idea is like Chardonnay is sort of the peasant grape of the Loire Valley. It's not very famous, but he puts it in new oak. So it ends up being like kind of an extravagant wine. Such a great story. Yeah, totally. It's super funny. I, yeah, I remember looking into it and being like, this is so apt. And these guys are like, honestly, the most like artistic, romantic people I've ever met in their life. Um, I think uh, Francois, uh, or P Pascal's brother, I think, maybe Francois's brother. I can't remember which one of their brother, but um, he is the artist for some of the labels um, that they do. So it sort of just like runs in the family, I guess. So, um, but yeah, this is definitely a lot of new oak. A lot of new oak. Um, and, but yeah. despite that, I, I think, you know, they still let the quality of the fruit shine through. You're getting really precise driven mm -hmm. fruit quality to complement, you know, mm -hmm. the toasty vanilla notes. Um, and even for somebody that, that maybe thinks they dislike Chardonnay, I still think there's a good possibility that this is one they would enjoy quite a bit. Totally. Yeah. I think, like, this style of wine really appeals to people who like red wine. Like, totally. oh, do you want, like, a white wine that feels like a red wine and like this has that that oomph to it it's you know 13 percent alcohol on the label um it's got richness it's got i don't know intensity of flavor so i think for a lot of people who are like oh i only drink red wine like this wouldn't necessarily be a be a terrible option for them totally pair this with a big bowl of popcorn and <laughs> oh yeah that's your classic <laughs> eh totally Ch chardonnay and popcorn i really like that uh that combo it's definitely mine as well yeah, this is phenomenal. It's, uh, I mean, there's so much going on here. Mm -hmm. It's not, you're not just tasting that new oak. Totally. Yeah, this is really interesting too, because this is one of the wines that they age in like the deepest, oldest part of their cellar, which is like basically a tunnel that leaves from their winery to their house. Because uh, cool. back in the day, like, I guess that's how they, they set these things up. And so, yeah, it's in like the de deepest, darkest spot. And we went down there and it's like very zen. It's like, you know, just like rock floor, uh, it's maybe five feet tall. So, you know, both of us had to like be fully hunched over to like kind of get through this cave. But 
it's like very peaceful and you're like this is the perfect place for wine to to sort of you know, come of age so that's amazing yeah definitely delicious all right so next up is a wine that we have been dying to try forever and so we excited. finally cracked a bottle earlier today so this is made by our good friend ryan sturm who you've also met i have uh, so, ryan is wonderful yeah so this is this is perfect because you you know exactly who we're talking about um so this is ryan sturm's syrah um this is really special this is the only year that we've ever received this wine um I believe he made one other vintage of this, but we, we just didn't receive it that year. Um, so we're super excited to get the opportunity to share it with you. We only got uh, four cases, I think, five cases maybe. I feel like there's no way we could have gotten five cases. Uh, one of them vanished. <laughs> it's just gone. It's just gone forever. Mark probably drank it all. Into thin air. Um, but yeah, so either way, we, we didn't receive a ton of this wine, um, and this is the only ones we've ever received. So this is a really great opportunity to share something, again, super rare with, with everybody. Um, Ryan Sturm, his actual winery, and he himself uh, are in Santa Cruz, which is just south of San Francisco. Um, but this vineyard is in Sonoma, uh, which is just north of San Francisco. Um, if you sort of look at the, the valleys um, up there, you sort of have San Francisco, which is closest to the coast, um, and then next to that you have Napa. And so they're very similar, although Sonoma tends to get a little bit more coastal influence, um, while Napa tends to get most of its influence from basically off the bay, um, which again affects the, the temperature. Uh, there's a good reason these these areas are famous. Uh, maybe they don't deserve to be quite as famous as they are, but if you've ever visited them, you'd realize it's a spectacular place to grow grapes and, and any fruit, actually. Um, and so it makes a ton of sense that these, these wines are as famous as they are. Um, yeah, I just have to get into it because I, I can't even handle it. Yeah, uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, so this is made from Syrah. Um, Syrah is sort of... I think it's an underrated grape in California. It definitely doesn't go for uh, as, you know, you don't see as many people like hunting for California Syrah as you do for California Cab um, or even California Chardonnay. Um, when you do see them, they're often like extraordinarily expensive. Um, you know, they, they kind of end up at like both ends of the spectrum. Either they end up blended into cheap Pinot to try and make Pinot taste better, or they end up being like $300 a bottle from like these really famous producers who love Syrah, maybe even more than they like Cab, but they only make like 100 cases a year of it. Um, so this is a really cool opportunity to, to drink, again, Syrah at like a reasonable price. Um, from like a legendary part of the world, basically. I think this is really affordable considering uh, the quality of the wine, right? Totally. Yeah. I was like, yeah, when was the last time I saw wine from Sonoma for like under $50 a bottle? Right? So. And especially wine made in this fashion, right? Mm -hmm. Ooh. Yeah. It's a beast. It is. It's crazy. It's, it's quite light in the glass, but then you get that the tan and that kind of grippy totally yeah, yeah. structure yeah um so yeah th this wine is actually fermented in redwood cask um ryan is really obsessed with like the place he lives he's obsessed with california um he loves the idea of trying to make everything as like true to california as possible like they shouldn't be trying to imitate France. They shouldn't be trying to imitate Germany. They should just be making California wine that's true to California, but that's still drinkable. Um, 
So he wanted to use like the local tree species, which in, in this case is redwood. And redwood's really interesting because it has a lot of antimicrobial qualities. If you think of the places where redwoods grow, um, they're quite damp. And so basically, if they didn't have these sort of like antifungal, antimicrobial qualities, um, the trees would sort of just rot as they grew. And so it ends up being the perfect vessel to ferment wine in, other than the fact that uh, the staves uh, shrink a lot when they're dry. So in order to keep your, I don't know, this tank from from leaking all the time, he basically has to like soak water in it for, I don't know, basically whenever he's not using it, it has to be filled with water. Um, it also never loses 100% of its flavor. Unlike oak, after like five, six years, you're not really getting a ton of oak flavor anymore um, after using that barrel. Um, versus redwood, I think some of these fermenters are like from like the 70s and they still have redwood flavor. That's amazing. Um, yeah, and so you get this really distinctive sort of like redwoody quality to it. Um, I always describe it as like, yeah, being sort of like Palo Santo, kind of like incense quality to it. Yeah, that like totally. sweet wood spice. Um, you know, we were talking about it earlier, but North American Quality Purveyors came out with a really amazing uh, set of incense. And uh, I think that like the wood spice is like very similar to what their their incense smell like actually for me. That's super cool. Does mm-hmm. he have a local cooper then? So these are just really old. Um, they uh, are, yeah, I can't remember what winery they're from, but the winery is basically like, eventually got to a point like why why are we using these like we can just use like big stainless steel tanks or big plastic tanks or concrete or whatever um so i think he was able to pick them up for like you know a fairly good price and uh and just love the idea of using them if you um i I can't remember i think it was on levy dalton's podcast where he talked to morgan twain peterson about um, his father starting Ravenswood back in the day. And I guess the original Ravenswood Zinfandels used to be fermented in uh, in Redwood. Uh, and that's like part of the reason why they had like this distinctive spice quality. And, like back in the day, they used to be like, you know, 12.5% alcohol uh, Zinfandels fermented in Redwood. So the wines that got famous in California are actually probably a lot more similar to this than they are to those like bombastic 15% alcohol like monstrosities we see on the market. Totally. Uh, less so now, but... Yeah. That's so cool. I think I remember him talking about that when he visited again a couple of years ago. The timeline is a little blurry. Yeah, um, it was like three years ago now, I think. Yeah, it's it was. It's got like 2018, I think. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, and we recently used uh, one of Ryan's Zinfandels in uh, one of the virtual tastings that we did. And mm. it's funny, Ravenswood had come up again then. Um, I'm just talking about Zinfandel was really the first grape that I kind of came around on and realized mm. oh I like I like wine <laughs> this is this is something I like totally <laughs> now I like it a lot yeah um yeah I really dig this style this is sort of like the perfect midpoint between like Australian like Shiraz and like Northern Rhone Syrah again same grape variety but it has such a huge spectrum of flavors it can be like that Shirazi style where it's all just like blueberries and chocolate and then the northern rhone syrah which is just all you know meat and spice and this is a really sort of like happy medium where it's you know these really sort of like ripe raspberry black cherry cola kind of characters um but also this like savory smoky kind of edge to it cured meat still yeah definitely it's really lifted and and bright and yeah it's almost it almost contradicts itself a little bit as i was saying earlier like it's just so bright and and precise but Mm -hmm. complex there's so much going on yeah 
yeah texturally it's very intense too yes. like it's got some some serious tannic grip to it uh i'd easily put this in the cellar for five plus years I was for sure say, i'd love to visit this again in in a few years and see where it's at yeah. i mean it's drinking beautifully now um Mm-hmm. I guess it's too bad you didn't get more. <laughs> I know. Well, we still got a we still got a case left, so oh. we'll we'll be we'll definitely be grabbing a, a bottle to put in the, in the secret uh, the secret juice import stash. Perfect. So we can see it over that period for sure. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of what else I need to talk about with this wine. Open top fermenter, whole clusters. We talk pretty much every uh, every episode about whole cluster fermentation because almost all the wines we like are weirdly whole cluster. We love um, whole cluster. Yeah, so the grapes are not destemmed. They're actually fermenting the stems with this, which I think adds a lot of really nice spice notes. Um, yeah, something something that I really dig, especially for Syrah. Syrah is, is definitely traditionally fermented with the, with the stems on. Yeah, I think it kind of leads to that savory, almost herbal quality that it's got. Mm-hmm. such a gorgeous wine even to come back and visit it in the glass you know an hour from now totally. i'm interested to yeah we opened this up this afternoon but didn't decant it or anything like that so it's definitely open from from when we tasted it earlier but i think with like a proper decant i think it would uh it would open up even more Amazing. Um, and maybe change over the course of the next day or so we'll definitely uh yeah we'll, de- we'll definitely have to keep tasting it I'm not going to throw it out that's for sure <laughs> and um, is this 100 percent syrah i know yeah. ryan okay yeah, I believe so, at least, as, okay. as far as I know. Um, I actually wasn't even able to find any information on the actual, like, vineyard itself. Um, they don't have, like, a website. Uh, there's a picture of the house that's on the property, which is very beautiful. But other than that, like, the vineyard actually doesn't have a website. So they actually didn't give me a ton of information. I've messaged uh, Ryan about it a couple times. Hopefully he'll listen to this. And uh, <laughs> But he, he never has gotten back to me about this vineyard. So I actually have very little details about the, the, the physical vineyard itself, other than the fact that it's in... Um, Sonoma, um, and I believe in the northern part of Sonoma, planted on on some volcanic rock, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it's some friends of his that are farming this, and he basically got offered the fruit for uh, like an exceptional like price to quality ratio. And he's like, "Well, I guess I'm making Syrah this year." Uh, and so yeah, again, like I said last year, I don't think well we didn't get any because I think he only made like 25 for like 50 cases versus this year he made just over 100 cases so we actually got some that's super cool yeah yeah everything that Ryan does is uh is pretty cool Mm -hmm. all of his projects too I know that you guys probably aren't bringing in the companion wines anymore but I think that was a really cool project too that uh unfortunately not enough people really got behind but Mm-hmm. him working with his friends and, and working with different sites and, and making some really cool wines and alternative packages totally we yeah. love us some canned wine we do mark and i ended up buying like a couple flats uh you know i still have some in my fridge actually and you still have some at the shop we so. do we stocked up we are huge huge advocates for canned wine yeah um especially given we're right at the confluence of both of the rivers right so yeah. in the summer <laughs> it's perfect to come by and grab a can and go for a walk not that we condone drinking in public but <laughs> yeah exactly yeah don't listen terry don't listen <laughs> Our good uh, friends at the AGLC. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They wouldn't listen to 39 minutes of this podcast. Is that how long we've been on? That's, that's how long we've been on. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I guess that's a great opportunity for, for closing remarks. Um, I guess one more thing is, is what's sort of your pairing for a wine like this? Um, mm. You know, we kind of ran the gamut in our, in our write-up, but it's always good to get other people's opinions. We kind of get stuck in our own heads sometimes. 
I think this would be really good with like a even like a Korean style short rib or something like Ooh, that. Nice. Yeah, you're kind of in the same vein that we are. Okay, I didn't even see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we uh, yeah we, we said like maybe some cumin lamb. Oh, um, nice. Which is really fun. And then uh, yeah, I found this like really wicked uh, a Taiwanese pork belly dish. Uh, that just sounds ridiculously good. Yeah, that sounds um, awesome. Yeah, so definitely gonna. Test yeah, I think that kind of the Asian like combo, spices so. and that kind of thing playing into it. Yeah, exactly. That like combination of like um, like a little touch of sweetness, like aromatic spices, something kind of like that. I think would get along really well with this. For yeah, sure. definitely. So. Uh, cool. Well, that's all we have to say. Um, you know, we'll be back in two weeks for the um, for the other wine club as well. Um, hopefully, with a different guest on by then, uh, we'll figure that one out. <laughs> who knows who yet? Um, yeah. If anybody has any questions, feel free to send us an email. My email address is Eric E R I K at juiceimports.com. You can also go to our website, which is juiceimports.com. Super easy. Uh, we just launched a new web store, so we actually have really awesome merch. Uh, you can get yourself a corkscrew. You can get yourself a, a long sleeve t-shirt. Um, and definitely make sure that you go visit um, Aaron at Bricks. Uh, you know, we're in there at least once a week. Uh, Mark, maybe more like three or four times a week. Uh, <laughs> checking out the selection, grabbing bottles of wine. And not just from our own portfolio either. They have a lot of really great stuff from, from Garneau Block. Um, some really great stuff from Sir Lee, which is our pal out in, uh, in, in Vancouver. Um, you know, it's a really well-rounded selection. Lots of Canadian content. Um, huge South African section. Huge really South champion section. championing uh, South Africa. So, um, yeah, thanks for the support and thanks for, for coming out and sharing your, I don't know, thoughts with the, yeah, with the crew. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you inviting me to be on the, the podcast. Yeah. We'll do it again soon. I'm sure. Cheers. Cheers.